We are not rational creatures. Welcome to Right Start with Jim Custer, teaching pastor of Grace Polaris Church in Columbus, Ohio. We think we calmly listen to the evidence and then make up our minds about an issue based on the data. In fact, what we usually do is pick the conclusion we like and then find facts to defend it. Jesus ran into the brick wall of closed minds and hearts. Despite evidence like the raising of Lazarus from the dead, some simply chose not to believe. Here's Jim. I trust you brought your copy of God's Word with you this morning. Open your Bible then, please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. The Gospel of John, chapter 12. If you have any other translation than the New King James, it may be confusing. So we have put the text on the screens for you, the text that I'll be reading from the New King James translation. We have been studying the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ. We have carefully sought to understand his teachings about righteousness and the kingdom of God as found in the Sermon on the Mount. We have spent time in the hushed shadows of the upper room with him and his disciples as he forecast the future and made special promises to them. We have listened to the stories Jesus told and from those stories sought to understand his teaching and his rationale. We have been looking at the special deeds, miracles, events in Jesus' life. These are profound words that John gives us to think about this morning. They form the conclusion of his formal public ministry in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, if you will look with me please at verse 36, the last part of that verse says, these things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Now the passage for our study this morning. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. That the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. Because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. 
For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoke of my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Again, the Lord Jesus reminds his audience there and here this morning that he came into the world on a mission of salvation and that the mystery of who he is is bound up in his, his sameness, his oneness with God the Father. What an incredible event when God became flesh. The story of the birth and ministry of Jesus Christ is a fascinating one. It began with a conception in a virgin womb. It concluded in the agonies of crucifixion on a cross. It began with angels. It ended with agony. It began with Gentile messengers, magi from the east who came, seeing the star to worship and express their honor to the newborn king. It ended with wise men from the west coming to Jerusalem with the request, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. John has sought to capture for us in this gospel his experience of seven signs that Jesus performed, seven distinct and unique miracles that he performed, which persuaded John that he was, that Jesus was God. That's the essence of the gospel. When we come to the 13th chapter, Jesus takes his disciples behind the scenes to the upper room. And for the rest of John's gospel, all the way over to Acts chapter 2, Jesus is absent from the public place. He's no longer speaking to the multitudes. He's no longer presenting evidences to the crowds. He has withdrawn from them in order to focus his attention upon the disciples. You remember that the dozen plus times that Jesus appeared to people after his resurrection were all appearances to believers given as a gift to convince those who believed in him that the resurrection was real. 
When you come to this portion of scripture in John chapter 12, it forms the literary watershed of Jesus' public ministry. And John tells us, although he had done so many miracles before them, twice he had publicly cleansed the temple of those things that defiled it. He had just hours before ridden over the crest of the Mount of Olives, down through the Kidron Valley, and up into the temple area, riding upon a colt, a clear sign that fulfilled a significant promise of how Messiah would present himself as king to the Jewish people. He had healed a man who had been lying helpless by the pools of Bethesda. That's in the shadows of the temple itself. And healing that man on the Sabbath had caused such controversy that Jesus had been officially rejected by the nation of Israel's leaders. He had touched a man, made him see. Such a stir was caused by that that the man and his parents were excommunicated from Judaism because they would not disclaim the miracle that Jesus did. Why, just several days ago, Jesus had called Lazarus back from the grave. The power of that testimony to the claim of Jesus Christ that he is God was so overwhelming that the same official body of leaders who had, who had decided that Jesus had to be killed discussed killing Lazarus as well. Because his resurrection at the command of Jesus was such overwhelming proof that many people were following Jesus. Though he had done so many miracles before them, he had fed 5,000 men with a couple of fish and some loaves of bread, a lad's lunch. He had walked on the water. He had cleansed lepers and made them whole. He had done so many miracles that John said, if you tried to write about all of them, the earth itself could not contain the volumes that would have to be written. What John's trying to tell us in this verse is that evidence isn't the issue. And more miracles will not make the truth more truthful. Perhaps you have deluded yourself into thinking, well, if, if God would just do one more miracle, and you've even stipulated what it would have to be, then you would believe you're kidding yourself. Issues of faith 
Issues of faith have little to do with miracles. They have a great deal to do with the condition of the human heart. And when you are refusing the truth that has already been established and proven, when you reject the evidence that Jesus fulfilled the promises made hundreds of years before in the Old Testament prophets, fulfilled them to a T, and you reject that. And when you reject the evidence of the many, many miracles he did, which are written for us by eyewitnesses whose lives were transformed by the power of what they saw and heard. When you reject that, when you refuse to believe, more evidence won't persuade you differently. As a matter of fact, you do just the opposite. You begin to look for reasons and rationales and excuses to justify your rejection of the obvious truth. And that's exactly what happened here. Though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they did not believe. That's an act of the will. That's a human choice that says, I will not accept the evidences. I will not believe the truth. I refuse to yield to Jesus Christ. Then John says, therefore they could not believe. Now that's a different issue. When you see the truth and you refuse it, when you're presented with the evidences and you discount it, something happens inside of you. You become harder. The voice of God and the voice of conscience become quieter. And you settle into a routine where your mind and your heart is no longer illuminated and responsive to truth, but rather it digs in its heels and rejects the truth, and more truth will not help you. You're in a state of judicial wrath by God. That's what John's telling us. That that generation of people who saw the miracles, heard the words, saw Jesus Christ personally, and rejected him, they had come to the place where they could not believe. The power to choose had been stolen from them by their own rejection. It's nice to feel you're in control. I meet people all the time who consider themselves absolutely in control of their future. And their attitude is, when it becomes necessary, and if it becomes necessary, then I'll believe the truth and commit my life to Jesus Christ. No, you won't. You will not make a fool of God. In your act of rejecting the truth, you set yourself in opposition to God, and God's response to that is, according to Romans chapter 1, he gives you over to a new level of hardness. 
And when you're not content with that level of hardness and you keep pressing and pressing and pressing, God gives you over to a new level of hardness. That's a form of God's wrath. And as you persist in your willful disobedience and unbelief, God yields, he yields, he yields, and your heart and mind become more and more disoriented and hardened in sin and rebellion to the place where you're no longer sensitive to the call of God or to issues of truth. This is not a surprise. John tells us that Isaiah had seen as a prophet and had written in his book about this response that Jesus' public ministry would receive. Lord, who hath heard our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord or the strength of the Lord been revealed? Why, to that generation who lived in Jesus' day. They had seen these miracles. They had heard him speak. They had handled the evidences for themselves. What was their response? They would not believe. They would not accept. They would not move to the light. They would not humble themselves and accept the truth. So what happened? Their hearts were hardened. Their eyes were blinded. And that fulfilled the prophecy that God spoke to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6 when Isaiah saw the Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up. The seraphim were chanting, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. What Isaiah saw is that Jesus Christ would become the suffering sacrifice for our sins. So that we, through faith alone, could receive God's full pardon and forgiveness and become transformed to become children of God. Isaiah also saw that the one who suffered upon the cross would not be toyed, would not be played with, would not be manipulated and managed by your unbelief. Your very unbelief fulfills the prophecy of God itself. You have brought upon yourself Blackness, darkness, destruction, judgment of God. I'm aware this morning that there are possibly, probably some sitting right here. You could preach this message better than I, but you don't believe it. You have a Bible just like I do, but you don't read it. You've heard the salvation message over and over and over again, but you've never received it. And you're farther from God this morning. You're more settled in paths of unrighteousness and habits of unconscionable sin than you were the first time you heard the gospel. More light won't help you. You've committed yourself to blindness. More information won't help. Your understanding is blocked. That's what sin does. Sin destroys the processes by which truth is received and understood. And while we think we are holding God at bay, 
While we think that our refusal of the gospel is our American right and we can do it, thank you, and we're entitled to do it as we please. What we fail to realize is that when we do that, we place ourselves in the hardening process of sin. And God in his grace and mercy will release you. But you won't come back. And you can come to that place in your life like this generation did, where you're, where you're swimming in evidences, where the truth is all around you, but you cannot see it. You cannot appreciate it. And you will not respond to it. Now, in contrast to those who would not believe and could not believe, there's a third group that John notes. And these are people, even leaders of Judaism, who did believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, John says, there were some among them who believed, but their faith was defective. They loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They were more concerned about their status, their reputation, than they were about truth and their willingness to take a stand publicly and commit themselves to life-changing habits that would make them different than their neighbors. That's defective faith. Were they born again? Were they saved? There are many passages of Scripture which would indicate that these folks who believed believed things that were true about Jesus, but they themselves were not saved. Did you ever wonder why 3,000 people responded to the truth at Pentecost? Did you ever wonder why in a few days that number had swelled to 5,000 men? Did you ever wonder why in a matter of weeks that number had swelled to thousands of believers in Jerusalem? Much of that was because these folks with defective faith finally made a public commitment, a bold declaration of their faith in Jesus Christ. They were filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and their lives were transformed from being truth affirmers to truth behaviors through the power of the Spirit of God. Those crying for more evidence from God are usually the ones who deny the mountain of evidence right in front of them. Jesus said in a story, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And that turned out to be literally true. Jim's sermon is called, Evidence Isn't Enough. You can have the message on CD for a gift of $7 or more. It's the final sermon in our series, Special Works Jesus Did. That makes up an album of 13 CDs, which will come to you for an offering of $45 or more. Stand by for ordering details. God gave them over would be a fitting epitaph for Western culture. As the slope seems to get steeper and more slippery, you could help keep this channel of God's Word open. Would you consider praying for us and sending a financial gift if possible? Thanks to everyone doing the work of the ministry with us. Please mail us at Right Start, P.O. Box 437 Worthington, Ohio, 43085 USA, or call us at 1-800-984-2313. That's 800-984-2313. 
And find us on the internet at rightstartradio.org. There you can play Right Start Radio programs from today's show on back into the past, or listen to complete sermons without the broadcast edits. You'll find a link to the podcast on iTunes. You can give securely, email us, and more, all at rightstartradio.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan Pope. As we've read in John 12, Jesus didn't keep beating his head on the brick wall of unbelief. He changed his tactics. Have a great weekend, and we'll see where Jim is headed with this on Monday's Right Start. Right Start.